Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? Uh, it's been a long couple days. I just traveled back from Europe. We were at Mountain Bike, or I was at Mountain Bike Worlds uh, with Team Canada, which was a super experience. It was quite fun, but uh, yeah, I am hoarse today. I think dry air, and then also today somehow I had, I don't know how many calls I've been on today. I've been on a lot of calls and catching up, but all good. People are doing well. People are doing adventurous things. And what have you been up to? It's feel like I haven't seen you in 11 days. I know. Maybe more. I know. This is, I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, secret to a good marriage. Never actually spend your anniversaries together. So Seem we to resonate with people. A few people supported that as, as goals they have. And I think they also supported the uh, lack of a ton of couples bike rides because I posted about the fact that we also really only go on like one or two bike rides together every year. Well, I don't know uh, if that's a set rule, but maybe it maybe the way it's worked that's just recently. How, it, how it shakes out i think we've been doing that for a few years now and it's not like super purposeful but i do think it is important like if you're couples who do the same sports i do think it's important to not always assume that your training has to be together and i mean i think couples with kids understand this very well obviously because it's much harder to coordinate rides together or runs mm. together when you know you have kids at home but I think for couples without kids, the tendency is maybe to spend a lot more time training together, which can be great. Like we love running together. Uh, and we've actually done a couple episodes on how to train with your partner. Um, but I think our, our big secret to success is not doing a whole lot of rides together because that's, that's sort of our time. So when we do get to ride together, it's fun. Yeah, riding's I think maybe a tough one too. I think so, for yeah. sure. Which I think that episode does go pretty deep into it. So we maybe well, we'll just link to that we'll one. We'll link in the to show that notes in the if show you're notes. curious. Uh, this episode, today's episode, I went all over the map with Chris Minson. He is an academic expert in the list goes on here, but exercise physiology, women's health, heart health, and thermoregulation. He's a professor at the University of Oregon. He's doing a ton of really cool research. Uh, in sort of all different areas. And we talk about how that's actually a really neat approach. Most exercise physiologists tend to have one very niche area of specialty, and that's great. Like, obviously, that's super important. We need important. brain surgeons. We need those. Yeah. Um, but it is really cool to have someone who is kind of has his, has his hands in a bunch of different, different um you know, studies and research and stuff, because I think he makes connections where other experts who are very narrowly focused maybe miss things. And that's uh, in range. That's uh, David Epstein. And that's what he talks about in that book as well, is that uh, the generalist often makes and he has stories about something where someone's like an electrician and then gets into brain surgery randomly and then connects something. Uh, that's not the actual story, but something like that. Uh, so that's very cool. We should link to that podcast in the show notes. So as he's, well. we he's saying, had... okay, I know about heat. And then, you know, I've de dealt with, uh, you know, things specific to females or something like that. Is that. Yeah. So a lot of different things and you know, that, that makes it, so it's, it's 
just such an interesting conversation. We go deep into the importance of researching women athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the menstrual cycle. We talk about birth control. You know, these are like hills that I'm willing to die on. Well, and very topical uh, mm -hmm. areas as well right now. The, all those, the heat is very, very popular. And certainly, uh, I think we're seeing an increase. I'm not going to say that all is well. And, and there's lots of studying being uh, done on women. We'll say women's issues, I guess. But um things like the menstrual cycle and how that influences different things, including heat and performance. Yeah, exactly. And we do also finally answer the question of hot tubs versus saunas versus infrared saunas. So anyone who's been kind of pondering any of those, uh, we do finally Let's get into it. All of them? I'm not, I'm not going to spoil oh, okay. No spoilers. Okay. Uh, and we discuss whether or not alcohol while in the sauna or the hot tub is okay or not. Well, we have Finnish friends that would probably suggest it's important. Well, we, we go there. Okay. It's a really fun conversation. I think we're definitely going to have to have Chris back on. I feel like, Peter, uh, you didn't get to, to be around for the interview, and I think you're going to have a whole list of questions you want to bug him about afterwards, so we'll definitely have Chris on again. And if you have any questions for him, you, the listeners, uh, please shoot us a message over at consummateathlete.com. We have a contact form, or you can find us over at, at consummateathlete on all of the various social channels. Uh, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do us a solid and rate and review. And without further ado, let's get into this interview with Chris Minson. So and I really like starting with the athletic background and I really enjoy your athletic background and how it led you into, uh, into the whole, uh, you know, exercise physiology world. So sure, sure. can you, can you give me the whole story? Where, where did you grow up? What sports were you playing as a kid and how did you end up in is it San Diego cycling? Right. Yeah. So boy, it's a, it's a, when you get to be my age, right, realizing how long your story gets and I'll try and keep it short, but, um, by some, uh, weird lucky chances, I was actually born in Costa Rica and but then I moved as a young kid to well, just two years old to Denver, Colorado. Um, my dad there was, a, a, a rock climber, mountaineer, skier, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so I really got into the sports very early on. Um, my plan originally when I was in elementary school was to become the next, Ingemar, Stenmark, Franz Klammer, those are the big names in skiing at the time and, and you know, become this world famous skier. Um, uh, and I, I was also playing soccer and, and um, swimming a lot. Um, so I kind of started standing out more in swimming than anything else. And then we moved to Arizona and that killed my, my, uh, my ski career, which probably wouldn't have developed anyway, cause I'm not, you know, six, four and 200 pounds like these, most of these skiers are these days. Um, but yeah, so I, I swam a lot. I was very competitive, uh, uh, for, for many years. Um, I also wrestled in high schools for those kind of sports. Um, so swimming and, and wrestling were kind of my thing, but, uh, so I went to university of Arizona. I thought I'm going to be a swimmer there. Um, they had a program I wanted to go to, so I wasn't actually recruited to Arizona, but I was on that verge of being fast enough to, to swim at a D one level. So I walked on, um, for, I think two weeks <laughs> and then, you know, I'm not six, four with the eight foot wingspan. So, um, I was getting smoked in the water and there was a lot of distractions, um, at, at, uh, being a freshman at a school like the university of Arizona. So, um, I kind of failed on that front. Um, but I still loved endurance and, um, I always wanted to do Ironman as a kid and thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And, but I'm a terrible runner. And okay, so what, what kid wants to do Ironman? Like what memory do you have that makes you think Iron Man would be cool. So, so mine is that my dad was really into triathlon. And I remember like growing up seeing pictures of him in like the early eighties, like doing the races and stuff. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So that was mine. Mine, mine was, it's a weird one. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was a high school student and this, uh, 
cowboy town of Prescott, Arizona. So it's, it's not like there were a lot of Ironman athletes running around, but um, something appealed to, I heard about it, I think in high school or maybe a little, little uh, earlier than that. And at that time it was very triathlon in general was very fringe and you didn't see triathlons really. They're almost all, um, you know, Ironman you'd hear about. Um, and so it's just the idea of these lunatics going out and, and doing three sports for, for 10, 12 hours at the time, just was like that is it's such a fringe thing. I thought it'd be kind of cool to do. Right. And so weirdly enough, there was a triathlon training class that I came across, I think it was my sophomore year at Arizona. Um, again, I had, had done swimming. I was not even a freshman, actually, I was a freshman. Um, so done swimming, thought I wanted to do something. And so I thought I'll take this class for, for fun, see what happens. And um, then the, the, the instructor, she was did a fantastic job. She had done Ironman. She brought in some other Ironman athletes. So I started just kind of um, getting excited about that. And, but then what I found was that uh, I really liked the cycling. And I kind of had a, I'd always bike commuted around Prescott, which has a lot of hills and whatnot. So I just loved, loved the bike. Um, but then a year from that, I had given up on the idea of triathlon because I was such a slow runner. And I've got, oh, I got stories about my triathlon experiences. <laughs> um, but I, uh, uh, yeah, I decided I'm a, I'm a cyclist much more than a triathlete. Um, so I ended up riding for the University of Arizona um, on the cycling team and, um, you know, just, just doing some of the other type of bike racing. And then when I graduated, um, I did do one, one big tri one triathlon, uh, as a undergrad, as a, as an undergraduate, um, which was kind of a disaster, but it was fun enough. Um, <laughs> that's for another time. If you want me to go down that rabbit hole, but, but, uh, but then I moved to San Diego and I ostensibly, I was going to go there to bike race and get really good at bike racing and, and, uh, very fast. And, um, I think this is where I told you before that, um, I ran into a problem where I just wasn't fast enough. And <laughs> that, that is a problem. Yeah. You want to make money at cycling? People should have told me you got to be really, really, really fast. Um, not just good, but like really fast. And so, um, that became a, an issue for me. So, um, yeah. So, uh, but strangely enough, I ended up being, because I, when I first got to San Diego, I had no money, no job. I was working at a bike shop, just working on, you know, fixing bikes. I got a job as a master swim coach, master's level swim coach um, for a master's program. I say a master's swim coach, like, oh, you're, you're a high level swim coach. Like, no, that's for teaching old people how to swim, older individuals. <laughs> you're not doing high school, right? Um, so yeah, and almost all my athletes were triathletes. And so they're always telling me, well, you're a good swimmer. You're a good cyclist. You should do triathlons. I said, yeah, great. And then I forgot that I couldn't run very fast. So, um, but I did do, I did do doing uh, Ironman Canada and it was, I had a really great time. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was a pro triathlete. She kind of trained me on the running part enough to get through it. And then, uh, that was at the early part of, uh, mountain biking. And then having been a, you know, growing up in Northern Arizona, you, you pretty much go four wheeling and dirt biking every weekend that you're not at least for me and when I was in the pool. Um, and so, uh, I kind of naturally took to mountain biking and it's been a, a passion ever since. Okay. I love it. So where does, where does the academic side of this come in? How did you end up in exercise physiology? Like, was that always the plan or definitely not? That just... Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I planned on being a veterinarian. That's why I went to university of Arizona. They had an animal health science program. That was really good. Um, but no, that school in the whole state of Arizona. So partway through my freshman year, one of my advisors told me you'll never get into that school because hardly anyone in Arizona gets to, to be a veterinarian. So you're you know, I was, I was devastated. I was like, really? And in hindsight now I would have said, you know, piss off. I'm going to make it work. You can't tell me what I can and can't do. I'm going to make it. Yeah. What a, what a weird statistic. No one in Arizona becomes a vet. No, I know. What? I know. <laughs> I know. 
And so, uh, it, you know, as I became an academic later on, I was thinking I'll never be that person to tell someone they can't do something. So that was a, a good lesson for me. But, but so I, what I started doing is looking at um, psychology and was look, mostly interested in animal psychology. I thought, okay, if I can't be a veterinarian, I'll be a behavioral animal psych psychologist. Um, as I got into it, I really kind of got excited about the, the neuropsych and the biopsych side of things more than the behavioral psych. And um, because I was bike racing at the time, I thought, hey, I'll, I'll get my, my uh, minor in exercise science. I didn't want to be a coach necessarily. I didn't want to teach um, at the high school level. So all the classes you take as a minor were all the physiology and biomechanics and those kind of things. I thought were really cool. Um, so I started to get my minor there. And then so when I became a failed cyclist in bike racer in San Diego, I was looking, okay, what am I going to do? And there's a San Diego state had a really good uh, master's program. So I went and um, started working at, or started, uh, got in, enrolled at San Diego state university in exercise science. And by chance they had a, I was walking through the halls one day and I saw a flyer on the wall that said, you know, uh, master's level researchers looking for, uh, uh, looking for re master's level researchers um, to work for the Naval health research center. So I applied and I got hired to work out in Point Loma at the Naval Health Research Center. And this is during the first Gulf War. We didn't call it that, but it was during the time of the first Gulf War. And uh, you know, the United States was prepared to go fight the Russians and other groups in the very cold climates. And instead we're heading off to Iraq and uh, into the desert. And so they were doing heat strain countermeasures. So trying to keep uh, these men and women, especially the Marines alive in the hot desert while wearing biochemical warfare gear. So I started working. That's, I never thought about that, yeah. that like going from the Cold War to like desert combat Absolutely. would be a completely different thing. That, that's so interesting. I think that's probably why we have any research on heat from the last like 30 years. It's a right? huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Huge part of it. And it was even more complicated because at the time Saddam Hussein, people were really afraid of him using biochemical warfare. So the way you protect people from biochemical warfare is by having these basically uh, uh, charcoal lined suits, which are really hot. So now people running around unbreathable charcoal lined suits in the desert and, you know, how do you, how do you keep them cool enough? So they're not overheating. So that was kind of our job. Right. And, and I, it's, that sounds really grandiose, but I was the, you know, student in there cleaning rectal probes. That was my job. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't the brains behind it. I'm not joking. That was literally my job. Like, you know, they're finished up. They're like, here you go. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Great, great. It, I'll sterilize it and I'll get it back <laughs> in your return. Yep. So, but somewhere in there, my mentors at the time said, you know, you kind of have this knack for research, seem kind of like it. And like, who doesn't like cleaning rectal probes? So um, they thought you can have a career in it. And so um, from that, I ended up going to Penn State um, and working with a guy named Larry Kenny. He's a world expert on aging and thermoregulation and cardiovascular health. And uh, he, uh, he was nice enough to take me under his wing. And so I spent uh, four years at Penn State under his tutelage and uh, just fell in love with research and, and especially human-based research um, and especially around cardiovascular health, thermoregulatory function. Um, and from there, I worked with a great guy, probably one of the world's best exercise physiologists is also an anesthesiologist at Mayo Clinic. So I did three years uh, with Mike Joyner um, at Mayo Clinic. And then in 2000, came out to Oregon for my first real job, I guess you can say. <laughs> I've been here ever since. Amazing. Amazing. Long story. Like um, I said, it's not, not a short story. No, that's, that's fantastic. And so I noticed that, you know, on your, on your, um, university webpage, and I also, it really mentions that you're heavily into women's health research, which I actually thought was fascinating because you don't hear about that many 
men who are researching women's health, especially in sort of the exercise sphere. So how did that come up? Like, how did you get into that? Yeah, great question. So um, I did grow up with two sisters who beat me up mercilessly. Um, and okay. then even as a, you know, in all the sports I've done with exception of wrestling at the time, but um, I've got my butt kicked by women in my entire life, right? It's just, there's a lot of really, really fast, strong, powerful women out there. And when I was a master's student, um, like I said, my, my girlfriend at the time was a pro triathlete. And she's always asking me all these questions about, well, if you're learning about exercise physiology, what about this? What about that? What about this? And I'd be like, I go into literature and I'd be like, there's not a whole lot on women, right? It's all almost entirely done in men. I found that frustrating. And so I started really getting interested in, I saw uh, first off a niche in there where like that we need to have more research on women. They're not just uh, smaller, lighter men. Um, they're, you know, so it's, they're, they're, they're different. There's a lot of training should be different. The physiology is different. Um, the menstrual cycle always in, interests me. It's like, this is such an incredible thing that, that happens every month for, for most women. And um, I want to learn more about that. And so um that's got me kind of interested in that physiology initially. And then when I was a, a postdoc at Mayo Clinic, um, I was doing some uh, kind of hardcore cardiovascular regulation, how blood pressure is regulated type work. And I went to my advisor and I said, there's nothing on the menstrual cycle at all. He's like, what do you mean it's nothing? And like, there's nothing hardly on how the sympathetic nervous system regulates blood pressure during, during the menstrual cycle. So we, um, he said, we'll write a grant on it. So I did, and we got it funded. And that was the first step. And then um, when I got to, here at Oregon, one of my lines of research I kind of kept going was this women's health stuff. And I've got really interested in blood pressure, um, health and women, the women's health initiative trials happened and you know, a lot of weird outcomes from that. A lot of women going off estrogen because they're going to cause all this cardiovascular disease, which is not entirely true, um, became much more complex. And so I got very interested also in uh, oral contraceptive use and the, some of the same hormones that women are using for contraceptive use are exact same ones that were in the women's health initiative trials that were saying, this is not healthy for people. I'm like, so it's not healthy for older women, but you can say we can give it very large doses for women for 30 years or 20 years to control their menstrual cycle. And there's not a problem. Well, it is a problem. <laughs> so, so that's where I kind of got into it. Um, and, and now, you know, we've got uh, funding currently and a, a number of projects looking at uh, female athletes and how we can use uh, heat acclimation, for instance, to improve performance. Um, I'm working on a paper right now with one of my uh, uh, graduate students on really kind of saying, look, where's our state of our research right now on, on uh, looking at women and physiology, it's, it's in exercise physiology. They're so far behind. Um, and so uh, hopefully this can be the first really push and others are doing this too. Other groups are doing this as well, which I'm excited about, but, um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of, again, a long background for how I got here, but I love it. But, uh, no, I love it. Passion. I love it. It's, it's great to talk to a, frankly, a, a man who's doing this research, because I mean, there are so many amazing women researchers who are doing this stuff too. And I, I'm so happy about that, but I also think like, it's really important to also have men invested in this as well so absolutely yeah. no I, I, um, <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that it's, it's, it's great yeah it's, just, it's been funny because um you know I went to one meeting where I showed up and I was the only guy there and I was and I thought it was really interesting right and um and I I think um yeah it was it was tricky at times I just feel like I didn't I didn't want to be like an interloper like I'm just showing up because there's a lot of women here I don't want to be like I, like I really legitimately have an interest in the physiology I really have an interest in trying to understand and 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 be uh and understand what the issues are but also try and be an advocate for pushing more people especially men and you know and there's so many men have these crazy ideas right I was interviewed I won't say where but I was interviewed for a postdoc before I went to Mayo but somewhere else 
And the advisor said, oh, you know, we're interested in the menstrual cycle side of thing, but that's for the women to research, not for us. We wouldn't be working that project. I was like, and that was a really term. I'm like, I'm not at that moment. I'm like, well, I'm not coming here. If you're that close minded to think, well, women will study the menstrual cycle, but we men don't study the menstrual cycle because it's too weird. Like, oh boy, we got work to do. That makes my, that makes my blood boil. Oh my gosh. And I'm so glad you mentioned the contraceptive thing, because I think I've said this on like 20 podcasts at this point, but I will like, that is the soapbox I'm willing to like, just stand and shout about for, for days. Um, just, yeah. And also the fact that the, all of the research done on female athletes, and this might be a bone I'd have to pick with you. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the research done on female athletes is done on women who are not using any kind of contraceptives, uh, or any, uh, like any kind of like birth control pills or IUDs or anything. But the majority of female athletes who are racing are using that stuff. So yep. if we don't have any information about how, how stuff impacts that, then most of this research is pretty like null and void for 90% of the women who it's, who it's talking to. So. I agree with you 100%. I'm glad you're angry about that because it, it is a major frustration. You know, we can take it the next step farther and say, you know, most research and because of the reviewers, we have to get papers published through, they want us to control the menstrual cycle or, or taking consideration. So the vast majority of studies that are done on women, and there's way too few of them, are done during what we call, you know, the early follicular phase or during menstruation or during the placebo phase of oral contraceptive use. So now we're defining a woman by one week, right? Mm-hmm. We have study women only during that period because it's easy because our hormones are low. It's like, but the hormones are apart and the fluctuations are apart. And it's just like, how, how, do, how do we get to that point? Right. How did that happen? It doesn't make any that sense. feels like we're just trying to put them into the, they are small men box. Yes. If we're going for when the hormones are the lowest. Yeah. Okay. So this is going to be yeah. the closest they're going to be to men. Yes. This is the good time. Or if we're going to do, uh. we're going to do sex difference. We want to compare men to women. So we want to have the female hormones down at the time. I'm like, well, that's not defining a, a woman. Right. And you, you, know, you, you mentioned the thing about, about athletes and athletes are an interesting aspect for, for hormone contraceptives. Um, and this, you know, um, IUD use is much more common now, of course, and some of them are drug eluding IUDs, but if we just go to the, the, contra- the oral contraceptives, um, you know, there's pluses and minuses, I think, to, uh, contraceptive use in athletes. Um, if they're sexually active, then it makes a lot of sense to use an oral contraceptive or a hormone contraceptive of some sort. Yeah. Cause you know, it's really going to throw off your season. Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of health risks to getting pregnant, right? Especially if you don't want to, 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 um, to be pregnant or you're not ready for it. Um, so, so there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but some women go on it because their body fat becomes low and they get into this female athlete triad and they're becoming amenorrheic. So they're like, well, I want to menstruate. So I'll start taking these hormones. But I'm not sure, I'm not going to advocate positively or negatively for that because there's not information not out there. But um, it does concern me a little bit that a woman is becoming so high energy uh, output, so low energy intake, this, you know, uh, the reds type of uh, situation um, or amenorrheic. And then we say, well, we're going to force the, their body to menstruate by giving them these hormones. Again, I'm not jumping on the side of this is good, this is bad, I'm saying, but it is a thing. It's something that we need to understand a lot better. That, that just seems kind of backwards to me when you actually like phrase it like that, because that doesn't really feel like we're looking at the actual cause that feels like we're treating a symptom, which is the lack of period. So in that case, getting the period back would not necessarily mean that we've fixed the issue. It just means that we've like figured out this one part of the, the red S overarching thing. Absolutely. Yep. You're, you're completely right. Yep. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, this is, I did not expect this conversation to go this way. I'm so excited. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is like, um, whenever I start talking about this, some men for sure, but, but women get very, very excited about it. And people have told me before that, oh, you know, you're a guy, women aren't going to want to talk to you about this. And I found that as soon as I start talking about it or, or start expressing some opinions and things like that, women are excited to hear about, it. they want to know more because there's so, there's a real lack of information out there and a real lack, lack of um, studies and um, other things. And those studies are hard to do. There's no doubt about it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my opinion at least. Yeah. No, for sure. And actually it's funny, the same thing's kind of true. What I've seen is with male coaches. So my, my husband, who is normally my co-host, he's over at mountain bike world right now, but he's a cycling okay. coach and he's a, you know, in the past, since he met me basically, and I, I write about this stuff all the time. He started actually asking female clients, like, you know, if you're comfortable with it, like, let me know when you have your period. And like, when, you know, if you're having any of these issues and everything, and they were all like, for the most part, all so happy to open up and like share those things. But it, it took him like, inviting that and you know making sure that they knew he was comfortable with that and like wanted that to be part of the discussion and i mean that changes the game for so many women just you know the coach knowing like oh okay this is like pms week so maybe we you know dial things down or change things up and it's made such a difference yeah it absolutely does and you know the research and so uh, stacy sims is a researcher and she's a lot of this work really really great work and she's wrote a book called roar roar um, like yep. Yep. We've it. had her on the show. Okay. Great. Before. Yeah. Yeah. I figured so you had. Yeah. Oh my yeah. Gosh. She's, she's, she's a friend and um, someone I respect immensely. Um, and, um, and I'll tell you, it's, uh, it, it's this fine balance though. Cause, cause, um, and I think it's because the science isn't solid enough to, to know what are the, are the best guiding principles we have. And I think her work is probably the best there, but, it, but if you listen to her speak, it gets really complicated. Like I've listened to her on some podcasts. I'm like, I'm going to, usually I listen to podcasts on my bike sometimes like with one ear. So I'm listening to the rose as best I can. Yep. Yep. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, I know. Same, same. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I have to stop me like, okay, what did she say and how, and when it's happened, it becomes, and it becomes really, really, really complex. So I, I'd like to see some, um, some more, more guiding principles I can follow that can help. And, 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 but, but the research isn't there. So we really need to be looking at this kind of work. And it's, and the other mm-hmm. thing that's tough is that there's, you know, we, I can easily recruit, uh, young women, college age women, but they're not the same thing as these high level collegiate athletes or the elite level athletes. Those are, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's different. And there may be different, um, strategies and, and, and things may be different. And so there's a, a real lack of, you know, there's a number of studies that are really good in the, the elite men, but few in elite women, despite the fact, look at the last Olympics, right? The, the number of women in af- male athletes was almost, I still can't figure out why they weren't the same, but they were almost the same, um, from what I was told, um, where they should be the same numbers. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I, I think that there is that the, the women are out there, and it's just uh, getting the researchers and people enough to, to to go seek them out and try and get funding for those kind of studies and, and to actually do them. Yes, definitely. Ah, oh, so good. Um, okay, we'll we'll move on from women for now, but conversation <laughs> to be continued because I love it. Um, you also talked about um, you do a lot of work in the the aging side of things. Um, so how did had you end up interested in that, and also like give me a high level effects of aging on athletic performance. Like, is there a point where we know we start to decline or is it different for everybody, different for men and women? Like what's, what's the deal with aging? Yeah, great. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I worked with Larry Kenny for my PhD and he's a world expert on thermoregulation aging. 
And so that's kind of where my first interest in aging happened. So my dissertation work at Penn State was actually looking at um, some of the basic cardiovascular responses to heat stress uh, as people age, as well as to um, when we get upright tilted in the heat, like why do people faint in the heat and those kind of things. Um, and so that's where I got interested in the aging aspect first. So, um, uh, you know, I, when I, when I, started my own laboratory. I had a couple lines of research and some people say, oh, you should only have one line of research to become the world expert in that. But I get distracted by bright, shiny objects, right? Like I, I see really cool stuff. I want to understand them. I want to do this kind of thing. And I also saw it as like, well, if I have different lines of research, some area might get funded, some area won't, and I'll focus on the one get re- get we'll get funding in well by chance i end up getting all the different areas funded and so i kind of kept them all going which of course makes me a little a little crazy and neurotic but but by the same right i'm no, also studying it. really cool stuff that i like so so aging is interesting right and so um I've, I've written a couple like mostly lay person type things um where we looked at the you know high level performance and how does aging impact athletic performance. No one's really looked too much at whether men or women are different in that regard. There's, there's a lack of that with aging and, and, um, uh, and the sex differences. Uh, and part of it is, you know, there's some athletes, high, high level athletes who are still doing well in football and other things. Tom Brady is like, you know, up at the, um, in their forties and other things. And so, um, and as a cyclist, you know, I was interested in how, how Chris Horner won, uh, I think it was the, the Giro d'Italia at 41. Um, and, that was, not, that was much older than most, you know, most cyclists and, and runners kind of peak in their mid thirties at the, at the, at the latest and oftentimes, but they, you know, they don't see too many, especially originally in the early twenties, but now you're seeing more. Um, so the whole concept became really, really interesting. If, if you look at, if, if we, we, we don't define by sport, you can find Olympians winning gold medals in their fifties and sixties. They're shooting arrows. They're doing, you know, they're the things like that. They're not ones that, that take a real toll in the body. Like, um, I mean, let's face it, you're a cyclist, your husband's a cyclist, I'm sure. Um, if you're going to ride, you're going to crash. If you're going to crash, you know, I used to bounce more now. I kind of crumple like a dried cookie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and your, your tolerance for risk decreases too. I like, I'm so mad. I didn't start mountain biking when I was younger because I, I'm terrified of stuff now. Right. Cause I'm like, if I break a wrist, that's weeks of work that I'm, you know, going to be in trouble with. Yep. So yep. I'm a lot more cautious than I probably would have been if I'd started when I was 12 and didn't care. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, and uh, the, you know, breaking your wrist is horrible. Hitting your head and not being able to think straight is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Knock on wood. Don't even yeah, want to think about I that. So, yeah. We, we unfortunately had a, an incident here where uh, someone uh, in our cycling community had a, a pretty major crash and is in a coma right now. And it's from mountain biking. And so it's, it, it's, it's life-changing. So we were out biking this past weekend where, where it happened and we're all kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> it's like, we yeah, all kind of like, terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately mountain biking, uh, I'm sure you can attest to this. If you're too timid, you're going to crash. If you're, yeah. Right? If you're, <laughs> so there's, a, there's a funny balance yes. of mountain biking with that, but um, yeah. But anyway, back, back to the aging thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, I think a large part of what happens um, is that as we train intensely, when you're younger, you have more reserves, physiological reserve to, to, to help recover, to help repair. And that becomes so critically important. So one reason why you're seeing people getting, you know, doing really well in sports older than they used to be is partly because we've become a lot smarter about how to do best nutrition, how to do best hydration, how to do best recovery strategies, how to do, you know, everything from foam rolling to sleep to all that kind of stuff makes a huge difference. 
I remember hearing Andre Agassi speak um, a long time ago and, and uh, his, his career was kind of declining a little bit. And then he met with someone who said, who basically put him through a stretching routines. Like I couldn't touch my toes. I couldn't do anything when he was young. He could do right. He didn't have to do those things. But he had this kind yeah. of resurgence in his career. Where he started really picking up his game quite a bit again, because he started doing all the things that we know you're supposed to do now. Right. Which is the stretching and mobility and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so I think that we were pushing the age envelope, but at some point, you know, uh, our, our physiologist isn't quite what it is where it's some of it has to do with low grade inflammation and the way we, we uh, regenerate and, and, and rebuild after, after training. Um, again, personally, I can say, you know, as a, I, I look back with the knowledge I have now and think when I was bike racing and I had this mentality of, if I go hard every single day, all the time, I'm going to get faster. I know mm -hmm. I was chronically overtrained, chronically. I think that really held me back on a lot of things. Um, now I find if I, I've got to be so careful about, I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot for me to, to I wouldn't call it overtrained because I'm not training enough to have the, the classic signs of overtraining. But I will say that um, I just get fatigued. I get in the bike, I'm tired. I'm, more, yeah. I'm just, you know, even though it's, so I have to greatly limit what I do. So the load I can put on is not the same as a 25 year old. Right. Mm -hmm. We all know that that load progression, recovery, all that stuff results in your being faster. Well, I, I can't do that anymore. So yeah, that's a yeah. big aging thing that, that changes for sure. And, um, but because I, I love looking at the sex differences and trying to understand female physiology, we need more work in that area. You know, women and men are, are different mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and yet we all age. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the phrase low grade inflammation, which I feel like is sort of having a, a moment right now, if you will, in, in the endurance sport community. So is, is it a real thing? Is it something we should worry about? Is there anything we can do about it? Great question. Um, short answer is, is, is yes to all those questions. It is a real thing. It is something we should be concerned about. something we should try and do something about for sure. Um, so what, you know, low grade information, it's, it's a little hard to define, but what it is, is, um, Here's one example. Um, so I do some work also in obesity because I have too many things that I like to do, but uh, obesity is something that's of interest to me. Um, and one of the ways that we know that what, what, what links an obese person to having cardiovascular disease? Well, what that is is that when the fat cells uh, swell up and they get what's called ischemic, not getting enough oxygen, and, and they, they uh, start releasing these inflammatory markers. So when you stress a cell like that, they're going to release these these negative infl inflammatory markers that's going to flow around the blood. It's going to get to your blood vessels and it's going to cause some inflammation in your blood vessels. Well, that inflammation in the blood vessels is one of those processes that results in vascular dysfunction or cardiovascular disease. So that's linking a fat cell over to heart disease and cardiovascular disease. But the same thing happens in athletes. So I'd say, you know, 10 years ago or something like that, people started really looking at this inflammatory process and they're like, well, we need to knock down inflammation as much as possible, knock it down, knock it down, knock it down. Well, it's become more complicated because now we know that if you, especially if you're a young person and you do a really hard bout of exercise, um, your reactive oxygen species, you know, the, the things we take antioxidants for and your inflammatory processes are all up, up regulated. And if you go and do a really hard, intense workout, you're weaker afterwards. You're broken down, your inflammatory system is up. We know if you block that inflammation, you block those reactive oxygen species, you're not going to build back as strong. So these inflammatory processes are really important, as are these reactive oxygen species. They are what drive our physiology to change and make improvements, but they recover and then they go back down again. 
the difference is in this part comes from psychological chronic stress. It comes from, um, uh, you know, uh, all, all the overreaching type thing you can do, all the overtraining you can kind of do where you've got this chronic um, levels of stress, um, whether it's physiological or mental stress. What that does is keep your, your, your um, immune system going all the time. It's not coming up, helping to recover and repair and coming back down again, coming up, helping recover, repair. It's staying elevated all the time. Now you've got some chronic inflammatory state. And it's not so bad that you, you go to the doctor and like, oh, you're, you know, all your biomarkers of inflammation are completely all over the roof. They're not, nothing spiked up so high that's gonna be like a warning sign. It's just this low level of inflammation that's circulating throughout your body. Um, lack of sleep can create these things, right? So when this happened, then you're, you, then you can actually have a number of different things. As, as we all know from the COVID situation, how our immune system responds um, is very, very complex. Um, and so with chronic inflammation, one thing can happen is you can't fight off a bigger inflammation very well because you can't activate that system because it's getting downregulated because it's always turned on at a low level. So that's, that's a problem. But that also means that when you do intense exercise, you're not going to be able to recover as well from that as well either. So the, the short answer, what we can do is all the stuff we know to do, stay hydrated, recover, make sure you do adequate recovery, eat healthy, right? Um, you know, eat your vegetables, all those kind of things. Um, you know, some groups have said, you know, right after you exercise, definitely don't take ibuprofen to knock down your, because that's part of the important process. So that's one thing, right? Don't eat a, a whole stack of blueberries right after you work out, give yourself four or five hours, let that oxidative stress. And no one's done really good studies to completely look at that, but there is, there is some, some truth to all that stuff. So give yourself some time to recover, but then eat your blueberries, eat your, you know, your green vegetables that have all these ant natural anti-inflammatory processes. Um, the one I don't mm -hmm. do very well, go to bed early, uh, sleep, sleep long as much as you can take rest breaks during the day, mental and physiological rest breaks during the day, all the stuff, you know, do meditation. If you can do yoga, something do breathing practices, all this stuff helps lower your mental stress that helps decrease your physiological stress, which comes out in the form of inflammation. So that's kind of the mm -hmm. best description I can give you, I guess, on, on that. No, that's great. Yeah. I'll say the only thing that I, I maybe so fucks a little on the opposite end of is that, uh, if the only time of day that someone is going to do their blueberries is in their like post-workout blueberry smoothie and they know they're just not going to like, that's just the time of day they're going to have their fruits and vegetables. I'm just like, just please do the blueberries after your workout. Like maybe like once a week, skip it. But like for the most part, blueberries are not going to like completely tank your. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. 100 you're gonna eat them later yes. then then absolutely yes. sure yeah, it, but like if that's yep, gonna <laughs> yep. the, the research on the on the on the antioxidants really were they gave big doses of antioxidants and they say oh you knock down some of the the adaptive responses it's not putting some blueberries in your in your protein shakes i'm a big i'm a yeah. big protein shake after workout person and yeah and uh yeah put your handful of frozen blueberries in there absolutely. it's not gonna like completely no. destroy no. all no. of the work yeah, you're still you're a, absolutely yeah no i i, I agree 100 <laughs> with you yeah. <laughs> yeah. That always makes me laugh because I think there's, there's a lot of people, I'm not going to like say it's everyone, but there's a lot of people that pick up on those tiny headlines where it's like, don't do blueberries after your workout. And they're like, okay, that was like the one healthy thing. Right. That was like the one fruit I ate all day, right. but like not going to do that anymore. I'm right. going to like go have like a Big Mac or something. Cause it's not blueberries. You're like, yep. Oh, yep. 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 <laughs> I have a similar thing. So as you know, I do some work with uh, heat acclimation and how we can use uh, yeah. repetitive bouts of heat stress to improve performance in cool weather, but also prepare people for hot events, those kind of things. And so, um, I'll get these people calling me sometimes and they're like, look, I'm a, you know, I'm a age group or athlete. And I really want to use heat acclimation to improve my, 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 my performance. I want to be able to, to, to get to the next level. So I think heat acclimation is a process. 
spend five minutes talking to him like, look, but be careful with this one, right? But but you gotta you gotta get better control of what you eat, how you eat, when you eat. You know, control uh, your sleep, control all these different things, right? Be better if you take care of those things. Add some strength training, especially as you get older. Add some strength training. Add some balance. Add some core strength. You do those things, and you get your level up really high. Then we can talk about how heat might improve your performance. But don't be looking for this magic bullet of well, if I heat acclimate myself, I'll see a performance increase. And like. If you did, it'd be small and it's meaningless because if you take care of the other things, you're going to be way, way, way better, right? So I shouldn't hit buy on the sauna that I have in my Amazon cart before I like get my eight hours of sleep. That's correct. But I will say <laughs> that that I do, um, uh, I am a big believer in heat physiology. I'm a, I'm a big believer in um, the benefits it provides for recovery, for adaptation, even for performance, but it, it doesn't mean that you do that and ignore all the important stuff that everyone yeah. should know about. You can hear about them a lot, right? Yeah. So. Um, actually, so on to on to heat. I first of all, I just I love that you study all of these different things. <laughs> Too much. And I do think no, I think that's actually really important because I mean, even just in this conversation, you've connected a lot of these different dots that never really get connected. Um, so I think that's probably really aided your research because you're able to see sort of these different things and make these connections that a researcher who just focuses on heat or just focuses on, you know, very specific like niche in women's physiology, just like won't ever connect. So well, thank you for I that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I refer to myself <laughs> and my, my close colleagues who do similar work as me. We're integrative physiologists. It's because yeah, we have our expertise in certain areas, but um, uh, I have such a big broad interest in all these areas and how they intersect and how they, how they relate. And then luckily I've just got a great connection of really fantastic physiologists around me. And so um, I can talk to them and they're, they're experts in this, that, the other. In fact, tomorrow I've got uh, uh, two meetings with, with two of our, um, uh, to my colleagues at University of Oregon, um, where am I again? <laughs> University of Oregon, and uh, and there, uh, one of them she's an expert on inflammation, and and uh, another one's uh, an expert on, on insulin signaling and those kind of things. And so I'm meeting with both them tomorrow because they're the world experts in what they do, and they're gonna they're gonna help me with understand what we want to pull together. So those those uh, um, that integrated physiology is fantastic. I love it. And I mean, I think that's, that's how we think about coaching and training and stuff is just this, this more holistic view. Cause I mean, you could just focus on cycling training and like just the workouts on the bike and not touch anything else, no strength, no mobility, no nutrition, no sleep, nothing. And you're not going to have an athlete that's, you know, getting all of those, those gains They're they're not going to perform as well as if you're taking everything into account. Absolutely. So, I agree completely. Yeah. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So heat, we mentioned saunas. Um, this is a question that I've, I've been wanting to ask someone. So I'm excited. I get to ask you saunas versus hot tubs. Um, what's, what's the, what's the difference? What's the deal? Oh, and infrared saunas, where do they factor in? Sure. Sure. Um, hopefully I'll give you more information in a year or two. On a, so, so, um, uh, I just moved into our new laboratory, um, and it's in Hayward field, the historic Hayward field at university of Oregon. Um, and so uh, our labs are in one of the corners of it. So, um, and with that, we put about $7 million into developing the lab and the equipment and supplies we have. So we have a new environmental chamber. We have an old one in an old building um, that we can simulate really any environment people live long-term. Um, we also got two hot water immersion tanks, which were called hot tubs. Um, they literally are the hot tubs you can buy. <laughs> 
Um, but it sounds it's fancier, fancier when you call them, yeah. Hot water immersion tanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I have a sauna and the sauna can do both traditional and far infrared. So we're starting some studies to try and compare these things. Um, but I can tell you from, cause I, you know, I, I work with uh, and collaborate and, and compete to, I guess, some degree with people doing work in different areas using sauna and other things. And, and these are my friends and colleagues. Um, and so what I can tell you, it, 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 there's a lot of strong opinions about which one is better, which one is not better. My short answer is heat is good. And so if you're getting your body temperature up, it's good. If you're getting your muscle temperature up, it's good. So it becomes, then it becomes nuanced, which does someone like better? Now let's, if we talk about just the simple idea of um, any kind of sauna, like a dry sauna. So you're either in far infrared or your traditional, I'll, I'll talk about the difference of those, um, those kind of saunas versus hot water immersion. So one thing we've done a lot of studies with hot water immersion, which is just sitting in a hot tub is, is because um, we can get someone's body temperature up very consistently because as you get more heat acclimated, your sweat rate in, in increases. And uh, so the amount of evaporative heat loss uh, in, improves, but if you're underwater, it doesn't matter. Right, your skin temperature is going to be affected by what the water is. If you're evaporating and sweating, you do sweat. I mean, as a swimmer, I used to think I don't sweat because, uh, you know, but then why well, am I always thirsty after I swim? So I was like, you know, a middle schooler. And then finally, I decided to not drink anything during, well, well we hardly ever did drink during swimming. And I, I weighed my body before swimming, a swim workout, and, and after two hour workout, and I lost like three pounds or something like that. I was like, where did all that go? Like, <laughs> I know I swallowed some water, and I like, then I kind of realized, oh, I guess I am sweating, and the water's never noticed it, but it doesn't have much cooling effect, right? So, really makes pools seem a lot grosser yeah, now that yeah, you say it like that. Yeah. You're like, oh, if everyone's sweating out three pounds, <laughs> yeah, except, um, you know, sweat when it comes out of, of clean skin is sterile. So, in my work, my line of work, I and basically bathing in people's sweat all day long. Cleaning retro probes, that's a different story. That's that's not quite as clean. So uh, I'm, I'm okay with sweat. Um, so uh, so anyway, so that's kind of what, what why we why use hot water immersion or, or hot tubs is because we can really, you know, as people become heat acclimated, we can still drive their body temperature up very consistently to certain temperatures. Um, and the other reason why we did it is more Americans um, tend to have hot tubs than they do saunas. It's increasing and growing number of sauna use, but but at this stage, people have more access to even most hot, most um, fitness centers will have a hot tub over a sauna. Some will have both um, steam rooms and whatnot. Um, so that's kind of the main, main thing, but again, I do believe very strongly that, uh, getting body temperature up is going to drive a lot of physiological changes and doing it consistently and doing it and staying, staying hydrated and recovering all like everything else we talked about, um, is important. So the difference between dry sauna, which is your traditional like finished sauna, um, and the far infrared is, is quite different. Both of them will raise your body temperature up. The traditional dry saunas are going to be somewhere in the order of 170 to, to 200 degrees. Fahrenheit in there, very, very hot, but very dry. So 20, 30% relative humidity in there. So pretty dry, very hot. And people will oftentimes go in there for a period of time, come out and either the classic thing was jump in a cold ice lake, but even my friends in Finland say, oh, we don't really do that that much. We just take a cool shower or we cool off a little bit and go back in. And as part of their social, I think it's really important. Part of the social connectiveness is, is through sauna. Um, one of my friends, he was telling me that, uh, he and his buddies would go out and do sauna before they go out to the clubs and they just kind of part of their natural things, how, how you start the evening. So it's just really part of their culture. Um, okay. So that's funny because that actually, I literally had just written down question mark alcohol with heat adaptation, <laughs> because I feel like 
a lot of people who use hot tubs and apparently your Finnish clubbing friends. Um, I imagine alcohol is involved with a lot of them. Can you speak to how that's probably not the best thing in the universe? Sure, sure. Um, let me make sure I'm on that side of it's not the best thing in the universe. Um, I mean, if it is, then I, I'm, I am all ears. Yeah. <laughs> if your goal is to relax and enjoy some time with friends and be mellow and decompress and that kind of stuff, then some alcohol is probably fine to be in the hot tub with, right? Um, the the problem is if you're doing it all the time, right? And our goal is to try and get people to use heat therapy, which is repetitive bouts of heat stress over time, you know, three, four or more times per week, then you won't be drinking alcohol every time you do it because that's a lot of alcohol. Um, you know, if we take it one slide, the rabbit hole, as we mentioned before, we might, I might go down. Um, alcohol is a funny thing. People say alcohol dehydrates you. And I had a buddy who's like, you know, he used to tell me like, oh, if I have two beers, you know, it's such a diuretic. I start just peeing like crazy. I'm like, like go drink two 16 ounces of uh, glasses of water and see if you pee a lot too, because you're going to pee a lot too. So alcohol is actually a fairly mild diuretic, especially if you have it, you know, a couple times a week or something. Um, it's not a very strong diuretic, but you drink, but, but most alcohol, unless you're drinking hard alcohol, you're going to take a fair bit of fluid in it with it. And that's what you're, that's what you're right. seeing that the, the loss. So, um, right. Cause it's pretty rare that someone just like actually sits and drinks a glass of water. Correct. in like 15, 20 minutes, yeah. but a beer, or you're just gonna, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, no, I, I now, like whenever I'm talking to an expert, mm -hmm. I always have water with me because I know someone's going to yell at me about hydration. So I'm like always prepared when I hear about it. Awesome. And you've got a, a, a biking cycling cup too, which of course is cool. I should have brought mine. I didn't the, realize I should have got like 10. Literally like the only ones we own at this I know. point. <laughs> I know exactly. Exactly. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of races give them away these days. So exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's the deal with alcohol in, in these places. Okay. Again, you know, it, it, I'm not going to say no alcohol cause that's ridiculous. Like saying no blueberries after exercise, um, people are going to do it if you're relaxing, if you're keeping it under control and not getting, I mean, getting drunk, it's, I mean, alcohol is a poison. So if you're taking a lot, it's, it's just something else your body's got to deal with and, and, and another stress you're putting into your body and other things going to disrupt your, your, uh, recovery and adaptation responses. So, you know, keep it under control as much as possible. Um, you know, I did, for instance, by way of example, I did, uh, go mountain biking, um, uh, some buddies on Saturday and then we stopped at this, uh, outdoor pub and, and, uh, you know, I, luckily I wasn't driving back. Cause it's like, wow. Okay. I actually feel that alcohol enough. Right. I think probably in two hours I had three ciders and, uh, mm -hmm. I'm like, did I just completely ruin? Like, no, I didn't ruin Cause I had fun. Right. <laughs> it's like, I exactly. Ruin my, 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 my cycling benefit or anything like that. So, um, so back to saunas. So the what's becoming more common now are these far infrared saunas. And what's different about far infrared saunas is that uh, they they typically the highest temperatures you get to are somewhere between 130 and 150 Fahrenheit, which still seems very, very hot, but compared to a dry finish sauna, very different. What happens with the far infrared is you use electro, electromagnetic waves uh, of a certain in, in, in the infrared spectrum, very much like sunlight, and it actually penetrates the skin and goes into the muscle and it basically heats us from inside out as opposed to a dry sauna, which is you're in a very hot room. And so you're, you're gaining heat from the outside, your core, um, and your skin temperature is getting higher and, and you're, you're, you're getting heat that way. So what's interesting about far infrared saunas, I have a buddy who had one, he'd heat it up to its max heat and he'd jump in there. He's like, I don't get that hot in it. I'm like, well, it's because when you, when you start the infrared sauna, it has all the infrared waves to heat up to its threshold, its peak temperature. If you get into peak temperature, the far infrared's turning off, turning back on, turning off, turning back on again. So you want to get into the far infrared sauna as it's 
ramping up to temperature, that's when the infrared system is on. Once it's at temperature, it's a peak temperature, it's gonna start shutting off. So you really wanna get in like, you know, 110, 120 degrees if it goes up to 150, for instance, right? So you're in there while the far infrared is going and, and get exposed to it that way. Um, I will tell you that we've been okay. playing with this now and our, our core temperatures in 30 minutes, our core temperature with far infrared is, does not go up nearly as far as high as it does with traditional sauna or with hot tub use. Um, right. That said, we, we haven't yet done the study where we have it planned to actually put temperature probes into the skeletal muscle and seeing if is a muscle temperature changing a little bit is, you know, the rectal temperature or is ingestible pills we use, are they just not picking up the actual uh, muscle temperature that might be happening? I suspect that's partly the case, but that said, it's not going to be as hot as a traditional sauna, but there are still health benefits sure. to it. Yeah. And I mean, I think I might be wrong, but infrared saunas are a little bit easier to like install in any home setting versus putting a hot tub in my condo or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I like about uh, saunas and especially for infrared saunas is that the energy use is a lot less. If you have a hot tub, you're constantly have to keep that thing hot. Right. And that's a lot of energy oh, use yeah. and it's a lot of water use and other things where far infrared it's a lower energy use. Um, you know, uh, most saunas, traditional saunas, they have a, a heating element that's usually electric these days. So you're not, not, you know, creating smoke and all this, which has a nice, if you're outside in the woods, it's a great way to do it, but not inside your house. Um, and so the electric heat is, takes quite a bit more. You got to heat it up to a very high temperature before you get in. So it's, it's an energy cost for traditional saunas, traditional saunas are, is higher than, than the far infrared. So I think far infrared is really, like you said, it's much easier. You can get these far infrared panels and, and put them in. And, um, and again, we don't, no one's really done really good studies to look at far infrared sauna and look at uh, the health benefits with the exception of something called WAN therapy, W-A-O-N. That was by a group in, um, in Japan. They started WAN therapy and they use far infrared heating. They do put someone in for, uh, into a, a, a far infrared sauna for about 20 to 25 minutes or so. And then they'd, people would come out and then they would wrap themselves in warm blankets. And so what WAN is a Japanese word for um, warm, soothing heat. And so that's what's warm, soothing heat idea. So they raised body temperature up, got them hot a, a bit with the um, far infrared sauna, but they didn't get that high body temperature, but they kept them warm for 30 minutes. So they just kind of relaxed and chilled out. And they did this in a lot of uh, patient populations, people with heart failure, people with ischemic heart disease, all kinds of stuff and saw some real good benefits, health benefits, but no one's looked at it yet from an athletic perspective. Okay. Interesting. Cool. All right. So there, there's my sauna hot tub question answered. Absolutely. Um, then my other question is, so I, I was just down in New Jersey visiting my family and it was, I think it was like 98 degrees out with like a, a humidity of like 99%. Um, and it got me thinking, it's like, I don't actually know how hot it feels outside. And like, I couldn't find anywhere to figure out what the actual like, te like perceived temperature, I guess would it be. Right. So how can someone, how can someone put like humidity and heat together and like figure out how hot it actually is outside when they're thinking about doing their workouts or does it matter? Yeah, I think it does. It does matter for sure. Um, the, there, there are a lot of um, websites, climate ones. I think I've used water, uh, weather underground is one I've used in the past. Um, there's others. They do have like a feels like temperature. And that's where they're kind of bringing in on the cold side, they're bringing in how, what, what actual temperature it is and the wind chill perhaps. And then on the hot side, it's bringing in the temp, the dry temperature and the hot temperature. Um, and what we look at is actually a little more complex than that. We look at what's called the wet bulb global temperature, looking at the dry temperature, which is the one you put a thermometer outside and see what temperature it is. We look at what's called the wet bulb temperature, which basically is a dry bulb temperature with um, a wet 
uh, wick around it that looks at evaporation. That gives us our humidity, right? So um, uh, when it's 100% humid, then then you've got no evaporation can occur. So it means it's going to feel a lot hotter. And the last one is a, it's a black globe temperature. It has to do with radiant effect from the sun. So we look at all those kind of things. So all those different factors can go into how someone feels and all those different factors can play into how high a body temperature will go up. So one thing, you know, being a, a lover of all things sweat, um, one thing that uh, uh, people probably know this, but it's, but until I, I tell them, sometimes they don't really fully understand it. But if you're in a gym and you're on a bike, and you're biking and, you, and you're just dripping water, sweat and it's pooling in water underneath you. Every drip you have of sweat is not cooling you off at all, zero. Um, what, it what has to happen is have a phase shift of that sweat on your skin from the liquid form to gaseous form. That phase shift from evaporation, it's called, the, it's called the latent heat of evaporation, that takes energy. The energy comes from the heat you've produced from your muscles during exercise. So that's why, um, you know, if some, you see someone sweating a lot or sweating a fair bit and you feel their skin and it's a dry environment, their skin's going to feel cool because they're evaporative cooling. So you generate all this heat in your muscles, your blood perfuses your muscles, brings oxygen, takes away byproducts of it, of the metabolism, but also the heat takes the heat to your skin, your skin, blood flow, uh, goes up, blood vessels dilate that brings skin, right, uh, heat right to the surface. That heat is then used to tr help transfer the, or, or transition that sweat in liquid form to gaseous form. So that's what it takes. So in a humid environment, what happens is the, 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 the water in the air is high. And what 100% humidity means is that at that temperature, that air is fully saturated. So 100% relative humidity, that air cannot hold any more water. So if you're even in somewhere where it's 70, 80%, that means at that temperature of air, that's already 70 to 80% uh, at capacity much additional water it can absorb. So if you're sweating a lot, you've only got the small window by how much you can evaporate. Okay. Right? And so that's why in, in what happens in that case, if you put a fan across yourself now, cause it, cause since you're sweating across your skin, for instance, then you're going to saturate that air completely to hundred percent of, of, of its humidity. So by having moving air across convective transfer, it's called of heat. So if we have convection moving of air across our skin. Now that saturated air, from that, from your sweating, you can now get pushed off your body and you've got drier air coming in. So that's why fans work, right? If it's 100% humid, fans won't work. The higher humidity is, the less effective fans are, but they're still better than not having a fan. So this is a very long way to get back to your answer is that does humidity matter? Absolutely, right? Um, and it's very hard to get people acclimated for um, very, very hot environments. So Ooh, okay, yeah. so that I now have two questions right. that I want to jump in with. Okay, first of all, in that case, okay, so actually in either case, so say we're we're indoors with our stationary trainer and we're training and we have a like super hot race. Would it be better to have a dehumidifier or a humidifier in the same room? Right. Yep. <laughs> or would that matter at all? Yeah. So it's 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 a it's a very complex question and actually one that that I'd say we don't have the best answer for. But I'll what I'll tell you is what I do with the athletes I work with. So um, uh, as you know, Tokyo is going to be very hot, and so I did work with a lot of athletes getting ready for the Tokyo Olympics and um, the NC2A Championships. Uh, the the West Regionals were in Austin, Texas, again hot, humid, and you were in Eugene, Oregon, where it's typically in in May and June. It's actually pretty cool and overcast and the things and and, uh, and not and not super humid. Um, and so uh, what I try and do is get people 
to be prepared as best possible for the environment they're going to be in. So if someone's going to compete in a hot and humid environment, a relatively high humidity, then I want them doing at least some of their training in a hot, humid environment. I want them getting used to that, right? That, that, so, so when they, they first start the race, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel horrible. This feels terrible, right? So I get that kind of feeling. That said, um, be, training in a hot, humid environment, um, even for part of the time, is, is very uh, challenging. So even if I'm getting someone ready for a hot, humid environment, I want some other heat acclimation being done in a drier environment that helps maximize their, 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 the effectiveness of their sweating. Their sweat glands will adapt better. Um, so our, our sweat glands actually adapt differently if it's a very humid environment versus if it's a dry environment. So I want some of their training, even if we're going for a humid environment, to be in a drier environment. Um, so their sweat glands will adapt the way that we want them to. But I also want them getting some humid exposure because that's going to be really, really uh, important for their, their sensory, how that feels and their, their own stress. And they come out in the, you know, I'll be the first to say, you know, I was, I've been, I was a Colorado, Arizona boy for most of my life and then San Diego. Right. And then I moved to Pennsylvania. I had never oh. felt humidity like that. And it was just like, it was oppressive. So I wasn't used to it. Even yeah. though I was really well, I was really heat acclimated because I was biking and racing in those hot, dry environments. I went out there and mm-hmm. I was horrible. Right. So, oh yeah, it's yeah. it's awful. It is. It is awful. It's, it's a big, big spin. Yeah, New Jersey, New York, those areas as well. You'll you'll feel the same thing for sure. Yeah. Okay, so now I've just like given all our listeners like they're all like looking on Amazon now for like humidifier and dehumidifier for their down right. for their basement <laughs> trainer setup. Now I just started a company all like... stuff a long time ago. Say, well, where you can get this perfect the perfect machine is from the uh, uh, mintonequipment.com or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> get on it come know, on i'm not i'm not i'm not, too, not marketing driven yeah i feel that uh okay so best practices for heat adaptation well i know we're, we're closing in on our hour here so let's let's wrap up with just like best ways to get through hot workouts because i mean i know it's already the end of august but like realistically we've got another month and a half before it really starts cooling off and with global warming, I mean, really, right. Never it know. might just be year round at this point. I don't know. Right, right. Well, I have very strong feelings about this. And so there's two parts of heat acclimation uh, that are important. One is preparing for a hot environment, which we get more in the summer. And I think especially in the spring, that's super important because people come out, uh, you know, people coming out of this um, uh, colder winter, um, maybe they're training a lot outside and all of a sudden some event. Uh, whether it's a marathon or a triathlon or what it happens to be is a lot harder than they expected. That's when you see the most heat related illnesses in people. And, and that's a pretty serious situation. So people get heat acclimated um, to the kind of worst case scenarios is what I want people doing. So the question, but then at wintertime, I think it's important to still have some heat. It's much easier to maintain heat acclimation than it is to lose it, bring it back, lose it, bring it back. And I believe the heat has some very good you know, um, anti-inflammatory, antioxidants, health-related benefits. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, growing evidence that that regularly getting heat acclimated, as long as you're doing it in, in a non-stressful way, um, that's going to have some some benefits to people's uh, immune response as a whole. So there's a lot of benefits, I think, to um, to, to do using heat throughout the whole winter, uh, the whole the whole throughout the year. The trick becomes when we get hot, we can't do as much work. Right, the simple fact. Um, and so even with heat acclimation, you know, I can always, you can always do more. And if you do that same, if you do a higher intensity workout in a cold environment, you're going to do a bit more work. So what I like to try and sprinkle in the heat acclimation process, right? So either, either, either do your workout in a cooler, colder environment, um, and then you add heat 
afterwards, later that day, the next day, something else. But you really need to separate out your high intensity, really hard workouts where you really want to get the max amount of load into the muscles and into the system, into your breathing, everything else, and maximize that in a cooler environment. And then you add heat separately. So on your recovery days, on your, your long, slow days, you can add some more heat, uh, those kind of things. Um, it's the equivalent of the live high, train low, if you're familiar with that. You know, the idea for a long mm -hmm. time, people oh, live at high altitude and then train at high altitude and you'll be faster. Well, it didn't really showcase that much. What happens, the way to maximize your benefits is live high, so you're sleeping at high altitudes, get the benefits from the higher altitudes while sleeping, but your high intensity days do them in low altitude where it's more oxygen, more oxygen rich. So you're really stressing the muscle and stressing the cardiovascular system with and making it adapt to a, a, its higher loads when more oxygen is available. So live high, train low is kind of the same thing as I'm talking about with the, the heat stress, where it's, you know, um, your, your intense workouts, you want to do them to maximize your workout, anything to do, do it in cooler environment, a lot of airflow, those kind of things. Other days when you want to mellower, or you want to add some heat separately, sit in a hot tub, sit in a sauna, do your intense workout and then do, do some heat afterwards. There's some benefits to that for sure. So there's a lot of ways you can integrate the, the heat stress without disrupting the this performance side of things. Love it. Love it. Um, and then actually so for the early spring kind of stuff, does it make sense for people say like runners or cyclists, I guess, to just train in like maybe an extra layer or two as it's certain like as it's getting warmer. So instead of like immediately going to your shorts and t-shirts, maybe actually sticking in your like tights and a jacket to like get a little bit of that heat adaptation. Absol earlier absolutely. In the season? Yeah. Overdressing is a strategy for sure. Um, you know, we did stupid things when I was uh, a wrestler in high school, we wore plastics to run around to try and lose weight to sweat it out, which don't recommend to anybody. That was ridiculous. Don't do that. Don't do that. No. Um, so we've actually done a study, for instance, uh, looking at um, some overdressing strategies and there are some sex differences there, which is interesting. Um, the first one is, is yes, absolutely. Overdressing can make a difference, right? So if you go out and it's a cool, uh, but not, uh, but not really cold day and you can, you can wear more clothes than you need to. So we had people going out wearing big puffy jackets and, and hats and, and, uh, uh wind resistant pants to go exercise and look at their temperature. And, you know, the, the way, I, so people don't, don't want to run around with rectal temperatures or swallowing, you know, super expensive, uh, pills to get their temperature. Um, so I, what I try and do is get them to think through, all right, if zero is how you feel thermoneutral, you're not hot, you're not cold. You're like that perfect condition. 10 is you're miserably hot. You feel horrible. You're awful. I want people exercising at a six or seven, right? And sometimes up, 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 high, up towards that seven is a better place. You think, wow, okay, I'm pretty hot. I'm not like dangerous hot, but I'm, I'm feeling kind of hot. That's where I want people exercising for half an hour, 40 minutes, something like that to get their heat acclimation going, right? If you start getting too hot, that's not helpful either. You're going to be going too slow. You're going to have a harder time recovery, all that kind of stuff. And it's not safe, right? Um, right. The good thing about overdressing, you get too hot, take some clothes off. Right. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other things early in the season, people want to do be doing more, more heat stress. They can, they can overdress. And if they're going out on a reasonably warm day, we always say run with somebody, tell people where you're going, stay close to home, those classic kind of things to, to be safe. But, um, mm -hmm. one difference I'll tell you is that the overdressing strategy was a little bit less effective in women than it was men. Um, a study okay. did. and part of this simply was, uh, I think because women tend to be a little bit smaller. So their muscle mass are generating the heat they're generating underneath the clothing. Uh, we had people match the same clothing outfit. So you and your husband dress similar and you go out and exercise, well, he's going to generate a little bit more heat and have a little bit more heat gain than you would. Right. So what you would need to do is overdress a little bit more to make sure that for okay. that lower metabolic rate, right. Um, uh, right. unless you guys are doing exact same spate, 
uh, exact same pace, exact same speed, but he may traditionally, you know, um, uh, weigh a bit more than you do. And so it's a little bit more work, those kind of things. So um, this is why I like this, this the, using this, this percept, perception works very well. So if you're, mm-hmm. you're both a seven, like, wow, okay, I, I, I feel hot, but I'm not like dangerous, uncomfortably hot, I feel, I feel hot. And um, then you're both good, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but I don't need to pull out like the cool like sweatsuit type things from like the early '90s, the the you know National Lampoon like Chevy Chase Christmas Vacation ones that the neighbors wore. Right. Nope. No, nope. I don't. I don't need to do that. Don't need to do that. Nope. nope. <laughs> uh, it, it really, anything you're doing that's gonna that's gonna decrease evaporation. So you know. Um, I work in the textile world a little bit, work some big companies working on their, their clothing um, and do a lot of testing for them. And every company says, no, this material is going to be just like you're not wearing anything. It's going to evaporate 100%. And anybody who's a cyclist or backcountry skier or whatever will tell you, no, there's nothing works as well as having as your skin. So they're all going to hold some heat and hold evaporation. And so putting a, a, a Gore-Tex or other jacket over, you're going to get hot, especially if you're exercising any kind of intensity whatsoever. You're just going to mm-hmm. over. So if you're wearing that kind of thing, put a little insulative layer between, you're probably going to get pretty hot and trying to keep any yeah. air movement out. So that convective transfer, again, if you've got air coming underneath the jacket and coming out or in various places, you want to minimize that because that'll keep you, keep you from uh, uh, getting cooled off. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we should wrap up here because I could keep talking to you all day. We're going to have to have you come back on to talk about more research. So any, anytime you are always welcome, because I feel like there's a million more top directions we could take this at this point. I would love it. <laughs> I, I, I love talking about the stuff. I'm super, super passionate about it. And as a so hardcore fun. passionate mountain biker, I want to know more about your, what your husband's doing because um, I, uh, I got talked to my wife last night because I was watching the world cup downhill, um, which I could finally could, I could finally see cause I couldn't, couldn't watch it live. And, um, and, uh, and, and one of the, uh, the top American racers crashed and I went, ah, like that. And she woke her up and she's like, what, what? Like, like and I got in so much trouble for watching it. So I, I'd love to hear <laughs> who your husband's working with and, and, uh, and all that, I get super yes, I think, yeah, you guys could definitely nerd out about that stuff for a while. So it. we'll, we'll have to have you back on soon. Fantastic. Um, and it's the best place for people to find you and like, just see what you're up to is your, uh, university of Oregon site, or is there anywhere else? That's the best place. Yeah. I'm, I'm really not in my social media cause I just don't have the time for it. I do pop up on Twitter on occasion, uh, just at Chris Minson. Um, I think, I think it is, um, but I don't put a whole lot in there. It's all related to some temperature stuff. Um, I should be better at it. Um, we are getting, because we just moved into new labs, um, my website's old, but I, I, I promise I'll be getting that up a lot better now that we have, um, yeah, uh, now that we have our, our, um, our, our new labs and some other things going on, we, we really got to brag about that a little more, but, uh, the reality mm-hmm. was we had, you know, between the world championships here and the Olympics and everything else, we had so many things, plus our research going on. I need to be better at that kind of thing, but, um, uh, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having too much fun. I get to, that. Too much having too much fun to brag about stuff I'm doing. Yeah, right. Um, it's funny. I actually was having that exact same conversation with someone else today. We were just saying like we're, we've been so behind on posting things because we're too busy doing them to like actually pause and take photos and do the appropriate write ups and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's a good problem. It's a good problem. It's a good problem to have. to have, and it's something I should be better at. But it's you know it's so secondary mind to me because like I said, I'm you know we're doing so many cool things, working so many cool athletes and people and everything else that that it's like mm-hmm. oh we should have post about that. I'm like oh yeah, well that's now three days ago. No one's gonna care. So yeah, I need to get better at it. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And we'll definitely do this again soon. Fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for, for inviting me on and, and uh, I'd come of back course. on heartbeat for sure. 
thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.